Democrats have been congratulating themselves for a strong showing in the 2022 midterms. But when it comes to the House, did they actually fumble the ball at the goal line? This is Beyond Politics, and I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL Radio Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see this show on YouTube and other outstanding video platforms. Now, regular listeners know how much Paul and I have been talking about one of the hardest things to do in the world. Look yourself in the mirror after a success and ask some tough questions about what you could have done better, because that's what we think Democrats need to be doing right now. Make no mistake, defeating virtually every pro-Trump Secretary of State or gubernatorial candidate, winning the Senate, flipping the Michigan legislature, and coming within a handful of seats in the House is a stunning achievement, especially in an environment tailor-made for a wipeout. But all of the same conditions that we were really worried about three weeks ago are still there. Donald Trump remains a viable threat to the continued existence of the country in just under two years. His followers still remain a powerful force in our country, and his minions are in control of the U.S. House of Representatives, not to mention state chambers across the country. That's why we found it refreshing to run across Lauren Harper and Liam Kerr, the co-founders of Welcome Pack, an organization focused on a pragmatic approach to growing a big tent Democratic Party and winning more elections. They were featured last week in the New York Times, arguing that Democrats actually made some critical missteps in the run-up to the election, and that now is the time to learn lessons so we don't repeat them in the future. Amen. And Liam and Lauren, welcome to Beyond Politics. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. So you told the New York Times that it kind of feels like Democrats are celebrating in the locker room because we lost by four. Actually, that's right on point because we did lose the national vote by about four percentage points. Should Democrats have actually won the House? I think the the four points or the five seats that we lost the House, you can think of as overperforming what the expectations were the week before. But Matt, to your question, should they have won the House? They should have had a chance to win the House. And when people looked at that five-point loss in the House, not flipping five seats that could have kept the House, they said, well, we were favored to lose by 21 points. You know, like everyone treats sports, treats politics like sports now, and everyone's looking at their 538 projections and rooting for their team and wearing their gear. And they said, well, we we're supposed to lose by 21. We almost lost by five. Let's go back to the tailgate and have another pop and, and enjoy the overperformance. The most troubling thing to us is not the damaged Democratic Party brand. It's not the fact that you know, there is so much for those candidates to overperform and overcome. You know, people like Paul who were able to win, win swing seats, win over swing voters, win over split ticket voters. It's not just that those people have to overcome a troubling national brand. It's that we didn't even try in so many seats. And you know, we look at it as if you lose by five and you're supposed to lose by 21, well, if you took a bunch of plays off, you should really be looking in the mirror. And there are many seats that are similar to Lauren Boebert's which obviously came down to the wire, which were rated as safe and which should have been competed on. And you know, a report we put out every quarter is called Conceding Democracy. We conceded a bunch of seats before the game even started. And we have to look back at, at those places and, and, and those instances and say, are we going to play through the whistle everywhere that we have a chance to win next cycle? So even when it does come time to dish out the dollars at the end, you have all the opportunities you can to make that majority. 
what was the basic mistake you're arguing that Democrats made here? Did Democrats fail to recruit the right candidates? Was it failing to recognize the best opportunities? Was it not spending gazillions of dollars in the right places? What's the basic, Coach Belichick? When people say the Democrats should, we have to get specific. When we say the Democrats, who do we mean? There are hundreds of different campaign committees, hundreds of different outside groups, different state parties, different, and the money is spread out across a lot of different decision makers. And you, when you aggregate the activities of the Democratic Party infrastructure, you get something that's highly inefficient. In Michigan's fourth congressional district, Democrats effectively did not field a competitive candidate. And when you say, whose responsibility is that? Well, it's a little bit on 17 people, which means it's on nobody. It's a little piece of a lot of people's job, but there's not one clear entity that owns it. And that's part of what makes these conversations after the election challenging. And six years ago, eight years ago, and for most of the last century, the House was decided by dozens of seats. Now, it looks like it'll be consistently decided by a handful of seats. Six years ago, Americans spent about $4 billion total on elections. This cycle, $17 billion. And the game has changed, and we need to change with it. And part of why it's a hard conversation is not just because, hey, I thought we were just going to have a beer back at the tailgate and enjoy ourselves after overperforming. Part of it is you don't know exactly where to look and say, wait a minute, we could have competed in a whole bunch more places, but it's not clear whose job it is to do it. If Democrats only had a billion or two to spend, it probably wouldn't make sense to make multi-million dollar bets in a lot of long shot districts and to really focus on building the infrastructure in you know, salmon districts or light red districts. But we're spending 17, $20 billion per election cycle as a country just on House and Senate races. At the same time as the share of seats that are deemed competitive have dropped from about a third or a quarter down to 10%. And so we got to go play in more places. And, and it's not going to take the entire party to walk in lockstep. We don't expect that. That's part of the fun, I think, of being a, a big tent party. But on the center end, we got to do our part to reach out more aggressively and compete in more places. Let's just talk a little bit about the mechanics of this, because Lauren and Liam, what you're what you're identifying here is this kind of, you know, behind the scenes, it's like the bachelor um, or the bachelorette, where if you're if you're thinking of running for Congress. What you really want to do is get noticed by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. You want to show them that you're viable. The best way to do that is to somehow overcome the catch-22 of you've got to raise enough money so that they think that you're viable on your own. But how do you do that unless you get their attention and get some national contacts to raise enough money? And so it sounds to me like what you're saying is you're not super worried about the 30 or 40 candidates that the Democrats, the, the National Party through their Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee puts their focus on every cycle. They're going to do just fine. They're going to get the party resources. They're going to get the attention. They're going to get the fundraising context. They're going to be invited to Nancy Pelosi's Napa Valley annual fundraiser every year, and they're going to meet all the rich folks. What you're worried about is sort of the next 40 and maybe the 40 after that, where if we could put in a little bit more resources, a little bit more focus and attention, we might pick up some additional seats. There's there's gold in them hills and, and <laughs> we need to pan for it. Is that right? Yeah, and it wasn't worth it 
eight years ago. It was a rational, it would have been a rational eight years ago to say, we're going to spend $2 million on a seat that's rated as safe that Nate Silver says has a 2% or 3% chance of, of winning. We're saying, one, there's more volatility in the electorate than people think. Everyone's so focused on how deeply polarized the 30% of most Democratic voters are and the 30% of most Republican voters are. And there is too little focus on the slice of voters in the middle that can make the difference, right? Those voters who voted Republican in 2004 and then voted for Paul in 2006. There maybe are fewer of those voters. The base voters may, you know, argue louder at Thanksgiving, but there's still those voters in the middle. And we're not serving those voters. We're not focused on those voters. And if we did, and we got out of that vicious cycle that you name of, well, if I cold call a rich person and he gives me two grand, then maybe another rich person will give me two grand. And then maybe the ratings agencies will go from safe Republican to lean Republican. And then the next rich guy I call will be more likely to give me two grand. It's insane. It is absolutely nuts. And like we can say, let's look at this market with fresh eyes and say, look, it's now a $17 billion market spread out over like six, eight, 10% of seats. And if we reallocate some of those resources in timing, reallocate them a little earlier, and reallocate them and what they get spent on um, to identify and support and get people to that, you know, from seed stage, maybe from when it's an idea up to the next level. I think the saddest thing about this election is you have someone like Adam Frisch who could make a bet on himself and put $2 million of his own money in to put himself on the radar in a race that was rated safe all the way up until there was a recount. Well, what if we had done that in other places, right? Yeah. All right. So let me, let me push back for a second. How do you tell in advance the difference between Adam Frisch and honestly, I can't even remember the name of Marjorie Taylor Greene's challenger. So Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert are the two probably most recognizable heinous individuals in the Republican Party. And we had on this show, oh, four or five months ago, Jason Sattler, well-known writer, formerly of USA Today. He goes online by LOL GOP. He has like 400,000 followers on Twitter. Um, and he wrote an article arguing, hey, look, why are we giving so much money to Marjorie Taylor Greene's challenger? We're wasting our resources on a race that we will never, ever in a million years win. And yeah, he was right about that, right? Like th there were plenty of resources for that race. At the time, I think the challenger had raised like 5 million bucks. That's pretty good. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be in Congress. Lauren Boebert, we nearly took out. So it's a tough... I, it sounds like you're setting up a, a, a tough proposition here, which is you've got to tell in advance where are the true prospects and where are where's the where's the fool's gold? Where's the where's the contenders that, oh, it's great. It, it's easy to get some energy behind. Let's take out Marjorie Taylor Greene. But how do you identify? No, no, no. There's a real opportunity here if we just fund it and organize it and help it along. Yeah. So two things and, and Lauren should jump in because Lauren's been a national leader on this, you know, out in CNN and Washington Post and others calling this out with this focus on, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene may be a super villain, but we have regular villains out there we could be focusing on. And, you know, at the very baseline level, there's just the, the top line math of all safe seats are not the same. So Cook Political Report or other, they had Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, both as safe. Well, Colorado three, 
voted for Trump at the same rate as Ohio, 53%. Nate Silver, Colorado 5, another district we looked at, and we had someone on the ground in, did not eventually get a candidate in. You know, it was R plus 27 was how they rated it. But Trump got 53% of the vote. So wait a minute, how can this be R plus 27 if Trump, you only got to flip 3% of people? They say, well, in 2018, Democrats won by nine and Doug Lamborn won by 17. So nine one way, 17 the other way, it's R plus 26 or R plus 27. We say, but wait a minute, you only got to flip 3% of people. This is insane. And there is this inefficiency in the market because they lump everybody together. It's like saying, you know, the AAA mortgages were all the same back in 08, right? They lump them all together. Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, unlike Boebert, where you got to flip 3% of people and looks like Ohio, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia 14, Trump got 68% of the vote. That is more red than anywhere else in the country other than West Virginia and Wyoming. And so at a top line level, that's really easy to see. <laughs> it's, look, it's 68 versus 53. It's flipping 18% of people versus flipping 3%. And you know, at the end of the year, Boebert's challengers had no money. And as you mentioned, Green's challenger had raised $5 million. So he got up to $15 million. Where did that money go? Now I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, and but it gets cycled through Facebook. If you can make a dollar and five cents in donations from every dollar you put into Facebook, you just keep doing that. So where did that $17 million go? It got rerouted to, it basically got split between Mark Zuckerberg and Democratic fundraising consultants, just because Marjorie Taylor Greene is a little bit more of a supervillain than, than Lauren Boebert. So part of seeing that is simple. It's straightforward. It's the top line number. And then some of that is a little more intricate. And what we look at is volatility. Where's the electorate more volatile? Where can you see seeds of center-right uh, leadership? Like in Lauren Boebert's district, State Senator Don Corum, courageous Republican, as a sitting Republican state legislator, challenged Lauren Boebert. And you say, can you take those voters who vote against Boebert in the primary and deploy them in the general? Right? If you have an area with more Hispanic voters, more married white men who flipped in 2018, right? there's different things you can look at and say, hey, actually, Ohio is far more volatile than Florida for example, right now at a top line level. So some of it's the, the 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 basic math and then some of it's getting underneath a little bit of the art and science. But I think Lauren, you know, has really called this out as as you know villains versus supervillains, which I think is the way to, to think about it. We have some regular old villains we can we can focus on. Well I want to go back to a question that we didn't get to ask before this kind of this part of the conversation, which was you there was you wrote an op-ed in the bulwark that that argued that Republicans had a red wave that was overcoming a you know key places by a few factors. This didn't seem like a red wave to those of us who aren't deep into the polls, but are just looking at you know Democrats only lost by four points. Why was this a Republican red wave? One part is how do you define a wave? Is it how many people vote for a certain party, or is it how many seats change hands? And for the question of where were voters moving, was there all this energy towards voters in one direction? And the clear answer is yes. Republicans actually got a higher percentage of the vote than they were forecast to. But what kind of a wave was it? Um, and if you actually go to YouTube uh, or stay on YouTube, if you're there after you're done with this, and you look at what are different types of waves? Well, there's one of the three major types is called the dumper, where you get to shallow ground and you have a sudden drop of a big wave. And that is what happened to Republicans when they hit Democrats who had differentiated from that Democratic brand that voters were wary of and concerned about. 
And so people like Jared Golden, who are incumbents, stayed in office, Sharice Davids, others who said, I'm going to reach across the aisle, I'm going to bring people in. And oftentimes, they were endorsed by current Republicans, former Republicans. When you look at the ads that those candidates were running, they were focused on reaching out across the aisle and being supported by credible Republicans and framing the debate in a way that, you know, as, as one member of Congress shared with us, they looked at those voters, the, the, at the Republicans, and said, for normal voters, they are way too out there for us. But then they looked at Democrats and said, I'm not so sure about them either. And that's the macro picture. But the Democrats who successfully said, no, 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 you can be sure about me, actually even listen to some Republicans in your district, some Republicans who used to represent you. People like Abigail Spanberger, backed by a former Republican member of Congress, Sharice Davids, backed by Republican mayors. They said, well, we can live with that. And then obviously on the Senate side too, just, just a real extremism and, and turnoffs on the Republican side. But yes, there absolutely was a red wave. Just look at the top line number. Republicans got about 51% of the vote. That's the same as they got in 2014 for the shellacking in, in 2010, the post-Obamacare wave. So at the high level, unfortunately, America did go that way. And we're lucky some Democrats stood up and were a little bit different and were very successful. So Lauren, there's something a little paradoxical here in welcome packs pitch, essentially. And it's a good pitch. I like what I'm hearing. <laughs> but at the same time, what you're saying is that you want to grow a big tent. And that has to, it necessarily has to include the Democratic Party's left flank. We need the Bernie bros. We need the AOC voters. You know, we need those folks in order to overcome what Liam just laid out, I think pretty convincingly, is, you know, a, we just we just somehow survived a red wave here. You know, so we have to we have to have all of those folks inside the tent. But you're also arguing, I think convincingly, that veering too far left is part of the problem. How do you how do you navigate that? How do you how do you put that message forward without sounding antagonistic? toward the AOCs of the world and that portion of our party's base? Well, unfortunately, sometimes you do sound antagonistic because the way that we look at it is, do you like being quote unquote right or do you like winning, right? And we know what wins, which is appealing to mainstream Democrats, regular degular America, right? We're not appealing to AOC's district in New York City. We're not appealing to Berkeley. We're not appealing to... Boston, like we're appealing to South Carolina and Ohio, right? Like normal people, <laughs> no offense to people who live there, but they have much different views, right? They are much more educated, much more wealthy, and they have particularly unique and niche views that they have the privilege and the propensity to even lean into because of their backgrounds in a lot of cases, right? And so we are saying, hey, like you can have those views. We are a big tent party. We want to be diverse and heterogeneous, right? We don't want to become a Republican party where, you know, everybody has to believe the exact same thing or you get outed, right? Um, ostracized and put out, right? You know, we want to be able to have the diversity in thought and theory, but we also like to win and we recognize what's at stake, right? We were having a conversation recently and someone was like, I can't, some, a Republican guy was talking to us and he was like, I can't wait to going back to arguing about taxes and what the tax rate 
rate should be. I want to win to make sure that America's secure right now. And then we can go back to arguing about that. But at what's at stake right now with so much extremism and white nationalism and so much stuff that's wrong with what's going on in both parties, we have to make sure that we're focusing on securing American democracy and being able to have a safe place to even have those conversations just basic public relations <laughs> matters, right? And so what we really have is a narrative issue in the Democratic Party, I mean, yeah, a perception and narrative issue, right? And so if we can change the perception and the narrative of what people perceive Democrats to be, then we'll do better off, right? Like, you know, obviously when you find more people who feel like you, think like you running, you will be more apt to and inclined to vote for them, right? And so like, in Ohio, we did this candidate recruitment project at the state legislature level, which is obviously a little different than the federal level. And we were like, hey, let's see if we can find some public servants, right? Some former police officers, some former teachers, some former firefighters, right? To run because they represent the communities that they're from. And people are like, oh, well, you know, there are this and there are that. So they must be great public servants, right? And so we try to, you know, differentiate there in those places where, you know, you're having someone even like Will Rollins, who ran in California, who's a former prosecutor, right? And it's like, he prosecuted people who, um, you know, participated in January 6 activities, I guess you could say nicely. And so you're finding these candidates who are like really making sure that they're going for like, I love America and I want to serve my community. So when you find more normal Democrats, you get more normal people to vote for them. And that's kind of the basic gist of it. That sounds too simple to believe, but it's, it kind of is. Well, what you're suggesting to me is kind of an interesting, I'm going to pick on something Liam said a, a moment ago, and he's probably got a good answer for this. But Liam, you, you were saying that you aren't necessarily trying to change the top line trajectory of the party. You're not trying to change the overall brand of the party. You're you're being strategic. You're you're aiming at here are some districts, here are some opportunities. Let's pick those off. And so what you're suggesting is there's sort of a top-down approach to fixing what ails the Democratic Party. And there's a bottom-up approach. And you guys are sort of focusing on the bottom-up approach. Is that possible though? And I have to call to the witness stand, Abigail Spanberger, who after the last election was saying, you know what I had to run against? I had to run against defund the police. You know, Connor Lamb, who got into a spat with our, our friend AOC, who I genuinely admire, by the way, I have no problem. I not only have no problem, I actually quite like AOC. But, you know, Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, noted centrist, got into a real back and forth with AOC about like, do you realize that your messaging and like the brand that you're imposing on the Democratic Party is freaking killing me in these like normie middle America, you know, Rust Belt type districts? Like, come on, man, as, as Joe would say. So is your approach viable? Can you do a bottom-up fix to the Democratic Party without dealing with sort of the top-down brand and the fact that, no, for a lot of voters, Democrats kind of means defund the police and we're way too woke. And by the way, we're underwater on the economy for some freaking reason, even though 2021 was the greatest year of job creation in American history. I mean, is this is this possible? Yeah, Matt, I think you hit the question. Is it a pick pick your path or is it a virtuous cycle we can build that they've built on the far left? And unfortunately, the cycle they've built on the far left has to work in concert with the far right 
and with conservative media. And that's just a fact. They have been brilliant at using conflict. And so, you know, when you get those fundraising emails, you know, from far left leader, it says, did you see what they said about so-and-so in the squad on Fox News? Click cash, click cash, click cash. Make that donation. And we pointed out AOC spent more money on merchandise than Democrats in a dozen winnable districts raised all cycle, right? Almost $2 million on sweatshirts and hats and pins and whatnot. They have found this business model that works exceedingly well, in part because it works with the new attention economy and it meets the political hobbyists who watch politics like sports. It meets them where they are. And working with right-wing media and right-wing actors, they reinforce a cycle that works for the far left and it works for the far right. It works with attention, hits on TV, and it makes that democratic brand. And the thing we can learn, and that I think it makes sense for those centrist democratic leaders you mentioned, to focus on their districts and focus on what their voters want. They don't want to create that conflict narrative. They don't want to be part of that wheel. But we need that. And not in an antagonistic way inside the Big Ten, in a productive way. We have to show, not just tell. We can't just say we had 2 million jobs created or just show, hey, most Democrats don't agree with defund the police or most organizations didn't say that. Well, some did. And that was used by both far left and conservative media to build that cycle that spins out of control and creates the Democratic brand. We have to go show it in the middle. And I think we can learn a lot from, you know, if you watch the, the documentary on Justice Democrats when they recruited AOC after the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, they're hanging out at a farmhouse in Tennessee with, you know, whiteboard paper and eating food and hanging out and having a good time. It looks like a lot of fun. And they said, hey, if we shock the world in just a couple races, we'll change the whole game. And they did. But that can happen in the center too. If you knock off some of these Trump Republicans in districts that were supposed to be safe, if you show people who Democrats are, and you interrupt that rage cycle, we can interrupt that rage cycle and bring people back together and show them a big tent Democratic Party that wins. It's a matter of trying to change the narrative and redirecting the conversation. So on Twitter, we had a bot, which is not something I can take credit for at all. <laughs> so shout out to you and our team. And every time Marcus Fowler's retweet, we would have a bot that would say, did you know that you can give to these candidates in swing districts where they actually have a shot? And well, granted, clever. like, Right, right. And it's not to say that, like, I don't know how many people we actually persuaded to not give it to Marcus Flowers after that. But like, those are the things you have to do. You have to kind of pass the mic, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. Well, I think what you're putting your finger on, I totally agree with you, Lauren. And I, I think what you're putting your finger on is something that I'm really worried about. I think fundraising is driving much more of our political psychology than we realize. We tend to focus on, oh, Russia manipulated us by using social media platforms. That's true. Bots manipulate us, as you cleverly did. Way to hack the bot ecosystem, Lauren. I like <laughs> it. I'm, you, that's the first bot I've ever been in favor of. You know, so all of those things are, are very true. But the major thing that's that's hacking us is the way we fund campaigns. The biggest source of fundraising political messaging that we're all exposed to is the freaking emails and the texts and the social media banners that are fundraising driven. Very little of it in terms of the slice of the pie is the actual paid messaging that candidates do or that committees do to try to persuade us to show up and to vote for their candidate. By, by dollars spent, far more of it is on fundraising. And what do we get? 
via that mechanism. What do you, I'm asking my viewers and my listeners, what do you see in your inbox? It is the most incendiary, clickbaity, rile you up type stuff about the right that you can imagine. And if you're a Republican, like our, you know, our our showmate, Alicia Preston, who we do our, our roundtable show with, it's it's stuff about the left. Um, you hear more about AOC and back when Pelosi was a sufficient boogeywoman, you, you'd hear about her. I think the strategic problem that, that you face is the same strategic problem that we all face in a way. It's not so much bottom up versus top down. It's how do you overcome the fact that of that $17 billion that Liam, you mentioned being spent in the last cycle, so much of it is going into fundraising messaging that is absolutely corroding our brains and turning us against each other and making us think that politics is made up of all of these far left and far right extremes, whereas the reality that you're pointing to and that you're trying to uplift is eh, most of us are, are kind of in closer to the middle, and we would actually vote for candidates who are closer to that middle if we had those options and we understood them. All right, rant well, over. Oh, well, first no, of please. all, I can't tell you how many individuals I'm, I'm subscribed for or candidates for that matter, even if I do like you, right? So it, it goes back to like, you know, trying to get candidates to commit to meeting people in a different way. And granted, like, obviously the fundraising element is an important part, but like, you know, look for your candidate in a different avenue. Like, do you see them on television? Do you see them in the paper? Do you see them at a town hall near you? Like, you know, try to find them where they are instead of being annoyed by them via email. So what's the message component for Democrats? What do we need to tell voters to win them in the selected tough districts? That It's about who as much as about what. It's about the messenger as much as it is about the message. And we got to tell the truth. We got to have people people want. So Laura mentioned Will Rollins, former aide to Governor Schwarzenegger, becomes a federal prosecutor, bipartisan family, and he talks about himself truthfully. The 2020 presidential primary, where a lot of this comes from, people weren't telling the truth. Go back and watch the tape. Listen to what they were talking about. It was fantasy land. We want regular people being honest about who they are. And as Lauren said, most people aren't in that niche that Democrats are painted with. And so it's just about being honest and practicing democracy. Go out and practice it, play it, say who we are, and we'll be fine. We just got to go do it. Yeah, there's a lot of wish we didn't do this, wish we didn't do that. We just need a bunch more people going and doing it over these select districts that can make the difference. Talking to the voters, we'll be fine. We'll be fun too. Liam Kerr, Lauren Harper, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. 